0: to see it, friends. You're listening to Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Fast Forward Radio is an audio production of The Speculist, and you can find us online at speculist.com, or if you don't mind typing a few more characters, blog.speculist.com. We'll take you to all the good stuff. On the blog and here on this program, we talk about the future. We talk about emerging possibilities and emerging technologies. We talk about a future that we think is going to be very bright, one that's coming sooner than most of us expect, and one that we think that we're all very much going to want to live to see. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me, as always, is my co-blogger, co-futurist, and co-host, Stephen Gordon. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Phil. How are you? Well, as I, uh, as I mentioned uh, last week, I think, I'm, uh, I'm still in the, the late throes of a kind of a lingering uh, spring cold here, so...
1: Man, you're still you're still fighting that, huh? That's
0: still fighting it. Um, it uh, it moves oh, my head to my chest, and uh, you know what? I, I think it's uh, you know you know just because this topic is endlessly fascinating to the listeners, I'll spend that some. <coughs> um, yeah. I, I believe it's a sinus infection that kind of turned into a bronchial thing. I oh man! Well, I, I'm glad to hear that you're you're getting over it. That's well, no, yeah. No anyway, I've got the cough button ready at any time that I need to. But uh, ne- never mind all that. How how are things with you? How's
1: All's well. Had a very interesting weekend, and uh, um, so I mean, I'll fired up about tonight's show.
0: All right. Well, uh, tell us about your interesting weekend. What's going on there?
1: Well, um, uh, today I went. Uh, this is the first time I've ever done this, I, um, which I'm kind of ashamed of. But I, here's the deal: I went to a, a Civil War reenactment for the first time today. And I mean, I'm I've lived within. I have
0: to just, stop you right there now. Yeah, just to clarify, you're ashamed that you've never done it before. No,
1: exactly, exactly. I because I, I live within, within just a few miles of it, and I've, all these years, I you know, I, I knew about when they did it, and just never bothered to show up. You know, it, and uh, now that I've gone this first time, I probably will go uh, additional times. It's it's fascinating um, how these guys pull it together and make it make it look believable, um, and, uh, and it's. You know, you know, some really dedicated guys. that take it very seriously uh, what they're doing. And, I'm, sure uh, they, I'm
0: sure they do. Now, paint the picture. How many? How many people are we talking about here um, on both the Confederate and Union sides?
1: How many? Well, there's there a, co- a couple hundred reenactors out there. This is the uh, this the Battle of Pleasant Hill is the name of this battle. Now, uh, unfortunately, they didn't have anything like the cast of characters they would have needed to. Uh, you know, completely reenact the battle. The, uh, the casualties alone um, at the Battle of Pleasant Hill numbered eight thousand. Wow! And uh, uh, but and they had a couple of hundred re, you know, reenactors. But I tell you, it was fascinating that you, you know some of the some of the fighting was up in the woods and you you'd hear it and you wouldn't see it, and then other other fighting is right out there in front of you. And I mean, the cannons are booming and uh, and you know there's guys on horseback, uh, you know, doing kind of a, a, it's sort of interesting because, you know, they'd, run, they'd, they'd charge up with their horse, they'd shoot, and then they, as fast as they could, they'd get back behind the lines because, you know, you have one shot. Right. You know, there's, they didn't have, well, they had, there was a few guys out there that had like uh, um, repeating rifles and uh, because that was just a brand new thing at the time, but uh, most of them were out there shooting muskets. Well, the cutting-edge technology was the repeating rifle.
0: That's well, here's right. a thought I just, I just had as you're, as you're describing this scene. You think about these uh, thousands of guys who fought at uh, at the Battle of Pleasant Hill. And what if you uh, could go back and take one of them to, to one side and say, you know, 150 years from now, people will actually get together to reenact this. It will be kind of an educational Social leisure activity for for people to get together and uh, pretend like they're fighting this battle that you're actually fighting. I wonder what uh, what what people from that era would make of this weird future that we live
1: in. Actually. <laughs> that, they think that that's the craziest thing I've ever heard of. Because and you know I would imagine that there wasn't a whole lot of uh, reenactment going on while the guys that participated in the Civil War were still alive.
0: Uh, well, certainly not of the Civil War. Yeah. I wonder if back in the day if they if they reenacted revolutionary war
1: battles or something like that. maybe that you know maybe they did I'd have to look that up the daughters of the revolution or whatever and see if they were doing stuff like you know uh, but you know as to me it, it was probably you know much too serious you know to do a whole lot of reenacting probably while those guys were still alive um but um Right. Anyway, it's uh, it, it was it was fascinating. I'm glad I got to do it, and I'm gonna I'm I'll probably attend more of these things. But yeah, it was cool. I had a good time with that.
0: Yeah, I, I think I think the seriousness would be the real difference. I think that you could tell that guy that, and he would say, "Wow, the future is going to be this unbelievably frivolous place." Yeah. <laughs>
1: because, I, you know, get to get I, if I were to go back in time, one of the things I would I would say to my fellow Southerners, you know, um, guys. Uh, you're going to lose <laughs> it ain't going to work <laughs> this isn't going to work uh, um you know uh why don't we why don't we call this off and uh and 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 sue for peace and sue <laughs> you know, because thousands and thousands and thousands are going to die and uh but you know um we would not be the country we are today were it not for the wars that we've had to endure so i guess uh,
0: that's true, although that would make a great story. You go back in time, try to persuade him, and they're all like, oh, the guy's from the future, should we listen to him? <laughs> no, this man's
1: crazy, obviously.
0: Yeah, it would be a good story, though. Yep. Well, speaking of things that are crazy, things that are serious, things that are frivolous, uh, we've also got, uh, and I won't say which of these applies, we've also got Michael Darling on the line. Michael, how are you?
2: <laughs> I'm good, and, I, and actually I would hope that uh, at least most of those apply. <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> well, fair enough. All uh, at the same time. I've been, uh, yes, yeah, sometimes... Uh, more often than I would probably prefer. I, I was uh, listening with uh, great interest to, Stephen, your tale of participating in this reenactment of the Battle of Pleasant Hill. Of course, I've got Google right in front of me, uh, you know, also known as the Oracle and uh, or the Sage. Yeah. And um, I quick looked it up, and, yes, it was in 1864, so you could have told that guy you were going to lose. They probably already were leaning that direction. But on that particular yeah. day, the South won. Battle of Pleasant Hill went to the Confederacy. So that was the
1: last major win, I understand, of the Confederacy. Uh, from then on, it was downhill for the Confederacy after the Battle of Pleasant Hill. But
2: that's uh, yeah. Well, eighteen sixty four. There couldn't have been much good news for the Confederacy after that. And that's right. I mean, that's right. and this—the battle occurred in uh, in April. So I don't know if you guys were doing the reenactment specifically as a. You yep. tying it close to the date or what yeah as as close
1: to the date as possible and still be on a weekend, I think is what it, what it went amount to is a hundred and forty four years ago
2: I think friday yeah. and i can 't help but ask if uh, if the your propensity to participate in the future. Would be in any way affected or shaded by the fact that you're participating in a battle where the South won versus participating in a reenactment where the South got their butt kicked. <laughs>
1: so well, I, I tell you, it was it was it was interesting. They. Um this doesn't really answer your question, but I, want, I think I want to share this with the audience. That I thought it was it was done in a classy sort of way. Um, they start this off, you know, you know, by saying you know, we're going to have a moment of silence for the uh, for the men who died on this field 144 years ago, and they had the moment of silence. Then, uh, you know, we pledge allegiance to the flag, and then you know, the, uh, you know, play the national anthem. And it's all very. Um, I don't know. It's to emphasize the reconciliation, right, of the uh, north and the south, and that you know this we're, we're recognizing our heritage here. But you know, nobody is nobody out there among all these southerners is longing for the south to rise again. You know, you know maybe there's a few rednecks out there, but I mean for the most part, you got you're you're dealing with the uh, uh, you know the the, uh, uh, the uh, realization and the understanding that we are a greater nation because of the way it turned out. And,
2: Although, correct me if I'm wrong, it is it is more or less a southern thing. I mean, nobody up in Ohio is saying, "Hey, let's get together and find a battlefield." And oh, you it. are incorrect. No, yeah, Gettysburg is a big no deal. Uh, Gettysburg, Gettysburg, of course. But yeah,
0: well, the thing is, most of the battlefields are in the uh,
1: south. You yeah. Speak. Um, that, that, that's the, and, and that's sort of a marker of uh, who's the who's the losing side. <laughs> you know? well, right. Yeah, yeah the, the battle if the battle's in your backyard, that's not a good thing.
0: But but they had that campaign into the north. They they, they fought the battle of Gettysburg. And see, I would think, uh, getting back to Michael's question, that that if one even if one were a Confederate buff and couldn't stand being in a battle uh, where his side lost, you would think you'd still want to fight Gettysburg because you got Pickett's charge and you. Got, I mean, there's there, there's there's all these uh, heroic. You know, Confederate things going on within the context of a given battle. So I would, I, I, I would think it's not as simple as just who won the battle or who lost the battle. But
2: yeah, and I, I, I believe me, I was not asking the question from a uh, you know why from a any any perspective other than you know you indicated you hadn't done it before, you have now, you would again. And I was like, so what would you be looking for for me if I had the opportunity to participate at Gettysburg? I mean, I, I could easily imagine becoming. Uh, you know, so obsessed with uh, the 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 per- impending participation that it would it would consume every part of my life, and like years would go by, and I'd still be fighting the Battle of Gettysburg.
1: Well, uh, some of those reenactors are are very much that way. Okay. I mean, they're you know they may have a day job, but uh, the rest of their life is consumed with uh, with reenacting. Well, well, I guess you can be that way about any hobby, but uh, that's uh, some of those reenactors are very very serious. Uh, you know, you got you got guys out there with uh, two foot beards, you know. Um, they they, wow.
0: they looked apart, the you know. Well, Matt Matt in the chat room notes that he lives near Gettysburg and uh, and he says he's never been and now he's going to pay it a visit. So I think we've uh, we've done our historical duty here in talking about this. Tonight. <laughs> yeah, we've encouraged a young person to uh, to, to check out the heritage. Oh, one one final note on that, I was I was thinking once again as you were talking about the uh, 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 pledge allegiance and and singing the Star Spangled Banner and everything. Wouldn't that, to our hypothetical uh, Confederate soldier who actually fought in the real battle, just make the the whole thing even all the more surreal, right? You say, yeah. Here we yeah. are in Louisiana, all these Southern guys reenacting the battle. And by the way, the first thing we're going to do is pledge allegiance to the U.S. and uh, sing the American national anthem.
2: <laughs> How well, we they may they maybe think those were terms that were imposed by the, uh, by, you know, by the settlement.
1: Well, yeah, yeah exactly. And to some extent, it was exactly that way. I mean, if you were, a, um, uh, you know, you had to uh, take an oath. Those, of, those in my family who fought uh, for the Confederacy all took an oath, and I've got, I've got the papers around here somewhere. Huh? Yeah. Wow. wow. They, um, in order to be a citizen and be able to vote and things like that. Again, yeah.
2: Are there uh, are there battle reenactors going on like in other parts of the world, or is it really just the Civil question. War that's motivated this level of? Uh, historical fanaticism, so to speak. That's a good uh, question. I, I don't know. I would, I would imagine. Well, and I, awesome. I have seen, I have seen uh, reenactments of sieges of what were essentially Roman architecture in England and the other parts of the UK, and I, we maybe have all seen the one where the guy is trying to figure out the trebuchet and whether or not you really can take down a... Uh, uh, reinforced uh, masonry wall with it, which turns out the answer is yes. It's not that hard. Um, but that was a
1: powerful uh, piece of artil- artillery for the time, wasn't it? it
2: you used well, it, uh, you, you, could, you could do a lot of damage. Used well with a, a, a contingent that was well-provisioned, you could do a lot of damage. I mean, it's all kinetic energy. There's no explosion, but um, you can throw a lot of stuff. I mean, it, it, it always strikes me as funny, and I've seen it in, uh, in Monty Python on the Holy Grail. There's a scene where they catapult a cow. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's comical to see the flying cow. And it's funny to even think about, yeah, you're being attacked by this cow. But on the other hand, 800-pound uh, cow coming over the wall is going to change the arrangement of things in a, in a very defined space. I, uh, I want to throw this secure. one thing in before we leave the topic. I had the
1: opportunity to talk to a guy whose job it was it was to decommission artillery shells, and he had actually been called in ten about ten years ago at the Battle of Pleasant Hill. They found an artillery shell, okay, and what that was is basically a hollow cannonball filled with black powder. Wow, and it's still very, very dangerous. And uh, if anything, the black powder just becomes more unstable over time. It was his job to, you know, he he says you you start with a very slow drill, and then you have to, you you know, you know. He went through the whole process with me, and man, why don't y'all just, uh, you know, just take it out there and put it in something and explode it, you know? But oh well. Drop
0: it in the lake, maybe.
1: I don't yeah, know. or something. I I, I don't. I, why, why stand there, stand over it, and drill into it, and then get the black powder out? You know, I mean, sounds to me like unnecessarily dangerous. But anyway, I guess they're the experts. I won't argue with them.
0: Well, that's the question you probably ask yourself quite a bit when you become the artillery handling specialist.
1: <laughs> yeah, why did I get it? Mom <laughs> yeah, well, always this, said I you know, should have been a doctor or something, yeah?
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, well, now we have strayed far from our intended topic this evening All Yeah,
1: far future.
0: All, all very interesting, because, yeah, we wanted to talk about the distant future, and here we are, uh, we're, we're stuck in the past. So <laughs> I'm going to shift gears for us now, and I'm going to say that this is Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Phil... Stephen and Michael, talking about the future. If you'd like to join us, you can uh, also talk about the far future. Call us at 347-215-8972. So uh, a good question that came from uh, Michael in the email earlier this evening as we were just sort of trotting out this topic for tonight was, what do we mean by the far future? What exactly is the far future? And I think that um, there are a number of different approaches to, to how you might answer that question. Um, I go back to, I think when I was in the maybe 6th grade, 7th grade, somewhere in there, I started reading, um, it would have been the uh, Dune series of books, and I also started reading the, the uh, Asimov's Foundation trilogy. And it really blew me away because it was the first science fiction that I had read where I, and it occurred to me that this was actually set not... You know, like Star Trek, a couple hundred years in the future. But this was set like thousands of years into the future, and especially Dune. If you read that series, you know, thousands of years pass during the uh, uh, during the, during the course of the uh, uh, of the story. And I used to read uh, Legion of Superheroes, which, of course, was set in the 30th <laughs> century. So that's uh, that, that's the that's that's the distant future. So so to me, I guess my first initial inkling of what is the distant future would have been anything more than uh, anything past star trek right yeah. um, is 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 the is the distant future and um there's an alternative way of looking at it though <laughs> well yeah that's a, that's a that's a kind of a lame you know uh juvenile way of looking at it but 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 that's my original framing you know yeah. like well, yeah. well the distant future would be anything past past all of that and then it occurred to me that I'd actually read uh, the Time machine before I read either of those other two books and of course. It, it doesn't hit you the same way, but in the time machine, he goes to the year like, I'm going to say like 800,000 or something like that. He goes, he goes 800,000 years into the future. Um, and uh, th- that's where you have the whole, the whole uh, conflict between the, oh, I can't even think of what they're called, the Eloi and the... Uh, Morlocks. Morlocks. <laughs> oh, thank you. Morlocks, that's right. <laughs> yeah, well done, Stephen. All right, he knows his H.G. Wells.
1: Um, well, I'm impressed that you remembered Eloy. I, I would have forgotten that.
0: Oh, Well, there you go. I guess <laughs> that's Eloy why, that's why we're a team. Yeah, that's why we work so well together. So, um, what's interesting about that future, if, if we could start with that one, because I think we're all familiar either with the book or with um, with with some one of the movie versions of, of the time machine, is for eight hundred thousand years into the future, things haven't really changed all that much. I mean, people, you know, the the, the, the uh, the, the The Morlocks are you know they're they 're big and ugly, and the Eloy are a little and cute right but uh, other than that, the world is uh still pretty much the same and in fact they hadn 't even developed much in the way of technology, which was kind of a surprising turn for uh for HG Wells to take, it you guys have any thoughts on on that particular future, or your own like initial thoughts on on what would define the distant future?
1: Well, I, my idea on that was that I think HG Wells is basically saying that you know, uh, however far we advanced, it it all fell apart by the by the distant distant future, where the more more locks and the Eloy showed up. Uh, you know, whatever civilization we had created apparently had not lasted. Um, Okay, so they're kind of post-technological at that. That's point. right. And so you know, uh, exactly, exactly.
2: Um in my way we uh, never get to understand. I'm yeah, sorry? There's no, there's no, there's uh, no uh, hint in the the H. time machine about how the UI get to be so, you know, casual. Why, why don't they care? Why do not they have any curiosity? Why don't they have books? Why, why haven't they advanced? And the implication was that you know this is the advance by definition. They're in the future, so it is the advance. But there's no there's no ex- exposition for what the heck happened. Well, I think uh, I think it was sort of understood.
1: Um, the Eloi were the descendants of the upper crust who no longer worked. And the Morlocks were the descendants of those that were kept down in the, the dank dungeons, working hard, and and uh, and so sort of in a way, it was the uh, uh, the revenge of the proletariat kind of idea. You got Darwin meets Marx. Yeah, and,
0: and and basically, the classes have evolved into different species.
1: Exactly. Oh, uh, so that's, yeah, that's that's what that was. So which is kind of a dark way of looking at the future. But my, my other, the other thing I wanted to point out was that, and I think that you kind of had pointed to this, Phil, earlier in, in an email, that it, you don't have to go distant in years to have a very different future, particularly if you take into account the ideas of the singularity. If If we are 20 years or 30 years from the singularity, you talk about a much different world in a very short period of time.
0: Absolutely true in fact one of the one of the uh criteria that I would use for defining the the distant future because where I was going with the whole uh, with the whole time machine thing was that that you probably can't put a date on it right uh, that probably it makes more sense to say, well, what are the characteristics of the future such that we would say, well, that is a distant future and and one of them would be um, when the world is no longer recognizable to us right so so to, to take an earlier example from human history, you, you, you had uh, people living as hunter-gatherers for, I guess, hundreds of thousands, millions of years, or tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. And um, so, so there could have been a passage of time of incredible length there, 20,000, 30,000 years between generations, and essentially very little changes. Then suddenly, over the course of what some say might have been just a few generations, uh, agriculture kicks in and and within a few hundred years you 've suddenly got people living in cities, and the whole the, the, the whole civilization process is beginning and so people from just uh, a few generations apart would look at uh, the, people from the hunter gatherer space would look at that future world and say that 's completely unrecognizable to me. that world is, is, has been completely transformed, so right. that would definitely be the distant future to them right the the, the 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 world we live in, or even the world that the most primitive civilized agrarian uh, society uh, occupied, would have been the distant future to them and, yep. and to your point yeah the, the 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 world beyond the day that the first uh, greater than human intelligence emerges starts to become a world that we might not recognize,
1: which is what makes a singularity scary to a lot of people and and, and understandably so.
2: I think it'll be uh the the lack of recognition will be more uh what's the right words it will be um it it could happen because of a uh other than biological uh intelligence it could also happen just because the biological intelligence is beginning to uh incorporate or uh, share with the non-biological uh devices in such a way that forget about not understanding the words to all the music, which was always a complaint of my grandparents and parents. Um, you know, I couldn't understand all these songs today. What are, what are these people singing about? And <laughs> frankly, I hear songs and I think the the they is, What is up with that? It will be more foreign and more alien uh, on a sort of a metal level that not just I won't be able to understand my grandchildren's music, I won't be able to understand them. Yeah. Well, and... Uh,
1: I, I would suppose that you'd have the opportunity in a world like that to to upgrade so you could understand them. One would hope. Yeah. And if and if uh and uh, and that's the temptation you would want to in order to be a part of the ongoing world, you know, that's why you don't stay uh, you know, normal people at that point. You you upgrade and do what you need to do in order to, to participate in the conversation of how the world's going to go.
0: Although, to use to, to, to extend Michael's analogy, um, even if the upgrade option is there, I mean, technically, um, all our parents had the option of listening to and trying to comprehend our music, right? Yeah. And, and did not avail themselves. Yeah, most of them did. And didn't. so why,
2: why not? Why, why would I opt for the same upgrades and implants as my grandchildren, but my grandmother was just never going to get behind the Grateful Dead? Well, th- I
1: think the reason is that uh, your grandmother's world was still alive and kicking. I mean there's you know she she still had her quilting bees and she still had her ladies clubs and this and that that was still going on and there was an AM station still playing her music. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And and you know perhaps that could be the case for us uh, for us bogies uh you know 30 years from now uh that you know there's there's still a uh uh, mosh culture. Let me explain what mosh is Mo- mostly original <laughs> substrate human. That's Kurzweil's term of what normal people will be can be called You're after those, talking there's... about the mosh pit thing and the kids and the crazy dancing and
2: all <laughs> yeah, that. that's right. overlap. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, normal humans uh, may have their own culture still um, 30 years from now, and so maybe we take refuge in that. Uh, but. I'm, I'm hopeful that I'm hopeful to be a part of what's going on, you know. So uh.
2: I can't help but picture the uh, one of my favorite Star Trek episodes of all versions of Star Trek in any uh, media, and that's the one where uh, uh, Moriarty comes back the second time in uh, Next Generation, and in the first one, uh, Data basically ch- defies the holodeck to give him a challenging, or I think Geordi does it for him, but they defy the holodeck to give a, a challenging. Uh, Sherlock Holmes episode of Data, and the Moriarty character is actually too dang smart, and he succeeds in exiting uh, from the holodeck con- controlling the Enterprise, and the only way they weighed him in is by explaining to him that, look, you're, you're not really a person. You're a character in the holodeck, and we don't know what to do with you. And he's like, well, that's disappointing to find out, yeah. <laughs> but figure it out. And what do you propose to do with me in the meantime? They go, we will store you, uh, your program, and all intact, and we'll research it. Well, in storage, he resurrects himself and takes over the ship and says, you didn't do anything to figure out how to save me. And at the end of the episode, that particular episode, they send Moriarty in his own little self-confined universe, give him his own Star Trek our ship to take over, and his own little universe, which for them is like a little... Uh, plastic cube that Data gets to keep in his, his room and of course you know the, the, the obvious implication is that Moriarty the Moriarty character is never going to know that it's not the real world but he's just this you know program thing interacting with this little programmed universe that they created and so they look around and it's, I think it maybe Riker somebody looks up and says computer freeze program just to make sure <laughs> that they haven't somehow created their own. that Moriarty didn't trap them at a, at a level that they didn't realize wasn't going to be the real world, and oh, you know, you're know you left you're left with it. And I'm like, yeah, well, back it up. I can't help but think that in the, the mosh and non-mosh universe, the non-mosh that get tired the, of the flash hanging around are just going to create our little holodeck for us, and they'll, we'll never know the difference.
1: <laughs> so we can live free of the weird people that are so far beyond us.
0: As long as, as long as we never know the difference, we'll never know the difference. <laughs> exactly. So it's really okay. It's, it's if 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 there's bugs in the system, you go, oh man, this isn't really Earth. They've got us, you know. We're in the Matrix. That that would be. A, that, of course, I don't intend to be a mosh. I'm I'm gonna, you know. I, I'm you can upgrade, enough, Upload so. and, and yeah.
2: My, my general thinking there is, am like a, I'm like a 2.0 adopter. You know, I don't want the first implant if they offered me a bionic knee right now. I'd take it, but in general, I don't want the first, you know, intellectual or personality implant. Others around yeah. me may feel like I should take it, <laughs> uh, but at two point oh, I, I feel like I'd be ready to start, you know, dabbling if I could. Yeah,
1: you never want to be on the bleeding edge when you're talking about uh, brain upgrades. I agree completely.
0: You know, well, I, that's been an interesting. Uh, point of uh, note about us anyway, you know we we' we're, here we are talking about the far future, and we, we published this blog and this podcast about uh, accelerating change and emerging technologies and uh, but we're we're all a little bit uh fuddy duddy when it comes to uh, adopting new technology I mean Stephen, you were telling me today you just finally got your first iPod over the weekend
1: right <laughs> that's, I mean, that's exactly fair. right i mean i I might be the last person to get one because i I felt like well you know i just I, I don't want to bow to the the Apple people like all, all these other cultists, you know. You beat me. Yeah. Oh, you still got You, you still haven't I, got one? I'm iPodless. Okay.
0: All right. I run oh. iTunes on my laptop. and I, His 8-track player works fine and he's <laughs> <laughs> Well,
1: I, I tell you, um, i I got to give it a positive review. I, I, I bought the iPod Touch, which is basically an iPhone without the phone. And <laughs> uh, i got to tell you, you know, it is just absolutely a work of art um how how uh i mean it's it, it's it's like it's it's like it's a product from the future i i, I you know I, that's that's you know how cool it is but anyway um if uh if, and if, you can't if, fly <laughs> no it can't but it can it, it can play music in a very cool way so I'm, well, I'm,
0: just imagine what the mp3 players would be like in the in the distant future,
1: they'll be invisible. They'll be implanted in our brains.
2: The, uh, I, I will. I will relate one iPod experience I have, and I think in a in a in a way I can't fully comprehend. This is the this is relevant to the conversation about near future and far future. I I went on a, a weekend trip a year ago for the Super Bowl, not just this last one, but a year and a half ago, and uh, I, I was flying in on Saturday and flying home on Sunday. I was I was intentionally traveling very very light. Um, didn't even bring a cell phone. Brought my laptop, and that was it. And I was staying at a friend's um, at present unoccupied condo. It was furnished, but they live in they live in another city, and I was staying in their condo. And my friend had FedExed me a key and said, "Look, uh, I, I don't know what's in the refrigerator. I don't know what's there. Make yourself at home." But I can tell you, there's no phone. We don't have a phone on there, and uh, you might get a Wi-Fi network from one of the neighbors. But you know, I don't know what's there. Well, my, I opened my laptop. And uh, I was no more than two or three blocks from a major college campus in this city. And uh, I, my, I, my MacBook must have seen a 100 Wi-Fi networks. And so it was just a hunt and pack to find one that I could get on. Well, it hadn't occurred to me before I left to load up the iTunes with a bunch of music, so I at least have music there. But I opened iTunes, and of course, if, if you're an iTunes user, you'll know this, uh, there's such a thing called shared iTunes playlists and I looked in my iTunes, knowing that there was you know, less than four songs there, and there was all these shared playlists. There must have been 200 shared playlists that popped up. Well, it was Saturday night, and there was a huge party going on somewhere in the neighborhood where I was, and all these people had their wireless devices that had their iTunes playlists set up to share. By midnight, it was starting to get thinner, and by the next morning, there was like two or three playlists I could see, and I was like, wow, I could just keep this thing open, and if there was a way to... You know, sort of interactive monitor with all that sharing going on at any given time. There's no, there's no need for me to load this thing up with with music anymore, as long as I don't want to control the music. And I, there was such a variety of quote shared stuff I could choose from. I didn't care.
0: Yeah, but of course, if everyone takes that attitude, then no one will be motivated to load it up. And yet, everyone
2: will because everyone will have some level of control. I mean, I look at my iTunes now. This MacBook was less than four weeks old at that point. I just hadn't occurred to it when I open iTunes now. It's uh, you know, it, it's bulging at the seams that I should really move all this stuff off of here onto an external thing because it's it's just clogging up the machine. Well,
0: interesting. Well, this is Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network and. Uh, Our lines are open now if you'd like to join us. We're talking about a lot of different topics, but it all relates to the future, and we're sort of touching on the distant future this evening. You can call us at 347-215-8972.
1: I'd like to, uh, uh, you know, kind of take a vote around the table here. Uh, Does the distant future include uh, finding uh, other uh, intelligent species in this galaxy? Hmm. Okay. Of course, this is a whole Fermi paradox thing all over again,
2: so... Uh, well, biological or not it doesn't there. have
1: to be I mean just intelligence of any kind in this in this galaxy
2: I think because of the way humans define intelligence, there will come a time where we uh know more about the galaxy than we currently do, and we will interpret that as signs of intelligence, whether or not we actually can encounter the uh the intelligence itself, okay, okay. So I've dodged the question, but made it sound very, you know, carefully <laughs> dodged. All oh, right, Bill. Uh, can you dodge the question
1: too?
0: And I will. I will dodge it differently. I I, I doubt that we will encounter um, another viable, ongoing intelligent species. I think it's possible that we will find evidence of one that uh, wiped itself out, or of one that um, hit the singularity and then disappeared. Either transcended to another universe, or went into space or they're just they're not to be found anymore. I think I think those those scenarios are possible. I think that there is a contempor- the, the idea that there is a contemporary you know that that the that the Klingons are out there or something like that. I think is uh, is is not is not terribly likely.
2: Yeah. Um, I, I well, and I, that, I, in, in, to that to that type of answer to that specific a measure of there's other intelligent beings and we'll either find them or we won't or whatever, I would say this. Uh, we have no useful or intelligent way to make that prediction, uh, Fermi paradox or not, because um, we don't really know, uh, based on how we decide we know things, we don't really know what the likelihood is. Is of Earth having produced life, let alone any place else. But yeah. even if we just say, well, you know, there's enough stars like the Sun, there's enough planets like Earth, that you know, the probability is what? Well, we don't know. We don't have all the entering arguments to calculate the probability. If you're crossing the to- ca- we've, crossing we've the coin... Got, we've got a group of one. You know, I mean, yeah. We, we, and we so know one instance. From that. that, we predict the likelihood. Well, we, we
1: you can't, can't predict. You're exactly right. We need a
2: repetitive event in order to establish even the, the tiniest data sample against which. Again, from how we define how we know something, from a heuristic uh, success uh, start point, we'd need a separate repetitive event in order to go, okay, now we know. This is roughly what it takes. This is the likelihood. We think there's 200 billion uh, stars in, in the galaxy. Let's let's go from there. Well, we don't have that.
1: Well, and I agree completely, but let me answer my question uh, myself. Um, I... I, uh, I agree, you know, again, I agree that we just don't know enough to make any kind of useful predictions about whether there's life in this galaxy, but the Fermi Paradox is, to me, pretty convincing. Uh, if there were other intelligent life that was, you know, capable of traveling um, and getting to us, they would have done so. And, uh, you know, so where is everybody? I, and that would tend to speak to the fact that we are probably alone
2: they're in Stephenville, Texas, man. We know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. But I, again, I think we're probably alone, and so that—that that, you know, um, if we're able to uh, travel in interstellar space, and that's what the far future holds for us, then that, I think that that's important. The fact that we, you know, uh, are going going to be alone, and uh, that gives us a lot of area to explore without, you know, running into some other. Uh, uh... species that could potentially be a competitor
0: so now uh... harvey in the chat room has asked us uh... It, whether we whether whether uh, we think there used to be life on mars and if we dig will we find some cities so uh, rather than opening up that whole can of worms again i've gone ahead and sent him a link uh... about my dog and
1: uh, <laughs> The connections with Phil are just—I mean—it will blow your mind. Let,
0: let me let me rephrase my answer. Yes, we there is life out there. We have found it. I've got it living in my house.
2: Okay. <laughs> Fortunately, it's a dog. That's really nice.
0: That's the, well. He appears to be a dog. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so, uh, that, I, I will. Uh, I'll throw out uh, a near future, far future uh, anecdote. That I, I got me thinking about both contemporary things and the near future, far future in a more useful way. I think I was at a uh, lunch with some people I knew, but a, a larger group of folks, most of whom I didn't know. Uh, one of whom was trying to be very provocative and um, and turned out to be somewhat annoying. But uh, the, the provocative part, the provocateur in him, got him saying, "You know, think twenty or ten thousand, twenty thousand, thirty thousand years in the future. What's what's?" What's on What's on tap for America and what's on tap for the world? And uh, a very really elderly gentleman that I hadn't met prior to this lunch, sitting next to me, said, "Well, it depends on you know how many thousands of years you want to talk about. But at some point in the future, uh, the landmass that is you know currently down around San Diego is going to be up in the Aleutians, and you know that's going to change America. And so, if you mean that kind of change, and Now, it struck me as odd that he would just kind of throw that out. Like, you know, plate tectonics was always something in the back of his mind. Well, it turns out it was. He he had built pipelines in his day job for 50 or 60 years and, in fact, built the first pipeline over the Andes in South America and was a major part of building the Alaskan pipeline. And in parts of the Andes that were relatively unstable, they had engineering design issues where they had sections of pipe moving uh, lateral to each other the pipeline was going east-west and the landmass was going north-south, um, roughly six inches a quarter. And the goal was to build a pipeline without having to uh, shut down uh, the flow and accommodate that kind of uh, ge- geologic movement, which I thought was just flat-out wicked-ass cool. <laughs> and I <laughs> got. Well, we and, need a telescoping uh, pipeline. Yeah. Well, you need. Well, you can go and look how they did it. it, it it's really rather amazing and. Um, very impressive. But um, I got to talking to him after lunch and kind of zeroed in on this, you know, what else did that lead you to think about in accomplishing that challenge? And he said, eventually we got to a point with the company where we realized we owned a lot of real estate, but it was, you know, relatively narrow in very long strips. And what can we do with that as a real estate investment besides the pipelines that we already had? And at some point, partly for internal corporate uses and partly for other reasons, they started putting fiber optic um, through their pipes and through their right of way, whether or not it was inside the pipe or uh, next to it or whatever, and I was like, "Oh, that was sort of forward thinking, yeah. because you're going to go into some remote area with a crew to build the pipeline. You might as well run the fiber at the same time and then figure out what to do with it later." And so they definitely overbuilt the network, but I was like, "Okay, that's a I, to me that that was a sort of a stunning accomplishment of." Thinking far future and having a, a perspective bigger than you know, I live in the 20th century and this is my life. Uh, and at the same time, bringing that back into the office and going, yeah, but we got to be able to do something better with we can we can be smarter with the real estate that we have, which happens to be long and and thin strips going long distances.
1: Well, you know, I think that that's an important important point. Uh, those who do well are those who can you know lead their shots you know what i'm saying those who uh, see where things are going and plan for it and they look like fools at the time don't they <laughs> and um and but but then they look like geniuses later uh you know the important thing is <laughs> looking like a genius later, rather.
2: <laughs> you know? uh, well, and I'm sure there's being willing
1: to look like a fool in the short term, but being the genius later.
0: I'm well, sure there's plenty don't of people end people up th- looking like geniuses later, which just history writes them off as fools or it
2: doesn't even know about them.
0: Exactly.
2: Yeah. They they led their shots in such a way that nobody cared, and it never mattered to anyone ever.
0: Yeah. So really, just take a crazy risk on the future because uh, people will only remember if you were right.
1: Right. Exactly.
2: Well they might, they can remember if you're colossally wrong. Well maybe everybody
1: in your family will remember.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, things were
1: going pretty well until Phil invested I in uh whatever. I yeah. Basically, Mars.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's right. But but that's interesting. I like the contrast between, you know, let's think I had a generation or or less uh in terms of let's let's lay out the let's lay out the fiber optics versus uh the future where San Diego is up there in the Aleutians. That's the far future from a human civilization standpoint because he, he, I mean, what's the time scale on that, did he say? Is that 50,000 years from now? Uh,
2: I think he said 30 to 50,000 years, but I actually think it's a little bit longer than that. Okay. In geologic terms, it, you know, it's essentially it's now. It's, it's in our era. But I, you know, I, I don't know. I, and frankly, that's the kind of thing where it seems like you should be able to go look it up and say, hey, where's <laughs> where's that part of the North American plate going to be in 35,000 years, give or take a couple hundred miles?
0: Right. You know, it, it, and it, it's interesting because it's, it's like, well, will civilization still be around? Will that matter to us? Will we have all been uploaded? And then it's just a matter of putting the servers in a secure place so that plate tectonics doesn't bother us. I Although, can we're tell you this.
2: It'll matter a great deal to the Eloi. Well, sure, but they're living in San Diego now, and you know, as it moves north, they're not going to like it as much, <laughs> It'll get chilly.
0: Well, so we have technology sufficient to, to deal with that, to deal with that problem when it comes up, because that's not the only one of those kinds of far future problems that we're going to be dealing with. As you that's said, right. on a geological scale, that's a blip. But eventually, we look at well, one day the sun
2: will burn out. Well, that's that. That's like ten million years. That one I know. Um, best, best estimates now is 10 million years, and I figure, you know, if we can't if we put this off until the nine 9 millionth year and really you know cram it in all in the last million years to figure it out, okay, then we're boneheads. But that's that's where you know my answer to the question comes, and I said this offline as we were getting going. Long term, I am pessimistic because um, I think at at, at, a, at a in very important ways it becomes um, live or die, it becomes a, a mortality question. Whether or not we, as a species, can organize and whether you call it cooperate or coexist, there's got to be some kind of co-something where we either live together or die together. And I don't see that kind of organization. Um, I, it, it, it manifests in so many ways where it should happen or it could happen, and it just flat out doesn't. And I go, yeah, and we're you know we're only seven six six point something billion people on the world. When we double that in, you know, I don't know, 100 years or 200 years, and we're approaching 10, 12, 30, 13 billion people, how is that lack of coexistence or cooperation going to manifest? I don't know. Someone's going to engineer the virus, the flu virus from 1918, and that's going to take out a chunk. Or someone's going to make HIV airborne, and that's going to take out a chunk. I don't know, but it, it ain't going to be the the friendly Eloy lounging around with the the you know their cute togas having fun.
0: The buzzkill you're listening to is Michael Darling and this is Fast Forward Radio on the Dog, Dog Radio Network. If you'd like to join uh, and cheer Michael up, you can reach us at 347-215-8972. Well, that is uh, that is that is one take, but you know, my response to that one, Michael is, well, we've made it this far, haven't we? I mean, absolutely. We got through the we got through the 20th century. We got we got through all those terrible wars, and, and we seem to have, at least the first instance of two superpowers that were armed to the teeth with uh, thermonuclear weapons ready to take each other down, we seem to get through that one. So,
2: so maybe, it, we're, uh, maybe we're just, lucky. Just in 20th century Cold War uh, uh, cosmology, let me just suggest this. Oh, wait. The species got through the first time where two countries were armed to the teeth and could have caused a, an Armageddon. Um, yeah. Call me back when when multiple parts of the planet have have been armed in such a way, and we've got through it ten or twenty or fifty or a hundred times. and We've got through it so often that it's sort of you know it's automatic. We know how to get through it now. Well,
0: this is one of the things that we talked about when we uh, when when we when we talked with uh, 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 Philip Van Naterveld from Lightboat Foundation. Is yep. There, there's this uh, this in, increase in capability to destroy, and our increase in capability to uh, to control that or to mitigate that, and yeah, the the, the great the great danger is that uh, the the one overtakes the other, and it it doesn't have to do it for long for uh, for, for things to look pretty bleak.
2: Well, and I don't know if it was
1: um... which argues in favor of uh, colonizing Mars or something. <laughs> You know, not having all our eggs in this one basket. Well, you, you want to have a backup plan. You know, it's like
0: uh, if if uh, the, if the San Diego is going to move to the Aleutians, well, that's a good reason to, you know, maybe have a place in Kansas City or something like that, which I think will probably still pretty much be there in 50,000 years. I
2: don't know if it was in response to that particular Lifeboat Foundation conversation, but I know that uh, uh, somewhere in that time frame, um I, I posted a note there in one of the comments about Stephen Pinker's talk. It was a TED talk where he talked about how, when you really measure, uh, the level of violence, uh, and he he actually sort of normalizes over generations and periods of time for human existence in a, in a fairly useful way. We're actually less violent now than we were before, and we're more aware of it. You know, 100 years ago or 200 years ago or more to the point, a thousand years ago, nobody in North America knew what the heck was going on in Darfur. But now it's on the news and it's on the internet, and we're more aware of it. And so we tend to focus on it. It scares us more because fear is still an important thing for us. But um, we're actually less violent. And you I've know, I've got a it's, way it's, to bring in the it's, whole it's
1: civil. I, I got a whole way of bringing the whole civil war come uh, conversation back back into this. Six hundred twenty thousand Americans died in the Civil War that's a lot of folks you know um it's uh in one day at anathem uh 23,000 people died now you can compare that it seems like every major conflict that we get into as a country fewer people die and uh which is a good thing you know it's it, it's cold, it comes a cold comfort to the families who do lose a loved one but uh it, we can be thankful that it seems to be that uh, yeah, you're exactly right. Um,
0: weren't you weren't you telling me, Stephen, that the battle you saw reenacted today, 8,000 people died in that battle?
1: something like that? That's right. And, I mean, this is a battle that, you know, not a whole lot of people have even heard of.
0: Yeah, a, a, relative, oh, a relatively
1: minor uh, battle, 8,000 people died. Twice the
0: death toll of the Iraq War, for yeah. at least uh, the American death toll of the Iraq War. Right. Which... You know, is is really pretty pretty shocking when you think about it. Not, not that not that, that makes four thousand a good number,
1: right? Not that, right, right, right. It's it, it, again, it's 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 a tragedy for every family that's lost somebody. But uh, it, it's it's you know it just goes to show that you know uh, we are finding ways to mitigate violence, even within the context of wars, which is good. When
2: it becomes it becomes uh, I and mean, then uh, Pinker, not in the TED Talk, but in other places, touches on this it becomes less productive. Um, than it was before, and it becomes more uh, more impactful each individual or a small a four thousand death number or versus a uh, six hundred thousand death number the impact is such that you actually want to minimize it even more if you can right and right. maybe that's maybe that 's a, a trend maybe there 's a uh, uh, maybe there 's a moore 's law there for the 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 it's not de-escalation, but the dissolution of that sort of violent approach to organizing the planet and organizing the people on it. And, Actually, when, when
0: Pinker explains it, it, it does have a kind of a Moore's law sound to it because he talks. It,
2: it felt uh, like it.
0: Yeah, he he talks about people in prehistoric times uh, who just simply had a much 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 greater chance of being killed by a fellow human being than we do today. And and statistically, even if you count the twentieth century and all the unbelievable violence and deprivations that occurred then, people living in that century had a, were less likely to be killed by a, a fellow human being than, say, somebody living like 50,000 B.C. I mean, it was just, that's how most people died, actually, yeah. and, and that, that we have moved away from that is uh, it's a pretty encouraging thing, actually.
2: So, yeah, we so maybe, maybe my, out it. we didn't even need a caller to... That's right. Maybe my uh, maybe it's just I'm, I own a mortgage company and I just keep reading the bad news over and over and over. <laughs> <laughs> you work your way out of it. So so let's say we do all get
0: along, and then and then we're facing things like the tectonic plates, or uh, we work that one out, and then we're facing well the sun's gonna, the sun's gonna explode. We work that one out. Um, ultimately, we reach a point where, the universe itself can't hold up, and that is actually going to be the topic of a little feature that I like to call. (laughs) Our little whale was singing mournfully about the heat death of the universe, guys, and that's our topic this evening on Astounding Science Facts.
1: Uh, uh, you talk about far future. I mean, you can't get any further future than that.
0: I thought I would take this story all the way to the end, um, and and this is this is this is where the universe is uh, is going to take us. Now, even if we even if we work out the plate tectonics, even if we work out the sun exploding, um, we've got this one looking us square in the eye. And uh, look this up on Wikipedia, and they give us they give us some pretty good time frames and uh, some phases. In which the heat death of the universe will occur. I think we're all familiar with the idea. Basically, this is the uh, maximization of entropy of the universe. This is the this is the universe itself running down. Okay, and they break it down like this. They say that there will be a degenerate age, and that will be from 10 to the 14th to 10 to the 40th years from now. Now, 10 to the 14th. I'm thinking. That one is still uh, is still describable in billions. Michael, you're a math guy. What is that? That's like a hundred billion. Is that right, or a hundred trillion, something like that?
2: Uh, I don't know. It's a big number. It's a big number. <laughs> big number. And by the time you get to ten to forty,
0: we're we're past numbers that I think, were, you know, they're quintillions, right? I mean, at that point, they're just they're they're big big numbers from now. That degenerate age is when. The universe will stop making new galaxies. It will stop making new stars. Uh, planets are going to fall into stars, or they're going to be flung out from the orbits of stars. Um, most of the protons, or like half the protons in the universe, are going to decay. Um, and that's going to lead to the black hole age, which will be 10 to the 40th to 10 to 100th power years from now. So a 10 followed by 100 zeros, that's the distant future, and that's when pretty much all that's left in the, in the universe is black holes. Okay? Right. Um, and right around 10 to the 100th power, uh, the black holes themselves pretty much will disintegrate, and we're going to hit what they call uh, the dark age, will be somewhere in the 10 to the 100th to 10 to the 150th years from now, and ultimately the photon age, when there's nothing left but diffuse photons in the universe, uh, somewhere beyond 10 to uh, basically a 10 with 150 zeros uh, years from now. So that is the distant future, and that is the fate that's looking us square in the face. Um, even if we um, um, talked me back into
1: it. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty pessimistic now. I mean and and you know, there's not much escaping it if you can't escape this universe. There's no there's no real good ways to get around it. I mean, I suppose we could all enter into some sort of virtual reality, but even the ver you know, and where you know, uh, maybe hundreds of millions of years can pass within a virtual reality uh and while in this universe maybe a couple of seconds goes by. So we can we can there are ways to expand time. But ultimately, um, you know, even even when you're uh uh you know spending a hundred thousand years for every second in this universe, time's still ticking, isn't it? So ultimately, uh you know, there's ultimately there is a, a period at the end of this sentence but that 's the universe
2: that 's not how it 's going to happen because here 's what will happen we 'll get uh, we 'll get the CERN large large collider online later this year and sometime next year or the year after we 'll start working on the next generation even bigger collider, and the two operating together will create a new universe for us, and we can tend it for you know ten to the fifteenth years and then when we haven 't figured out the sun deal. Um, that's when we'll uh, move into our alternate universe that we ourselves, you know, brought about. And it'll be a much younger universe, so we'll, we'll have the benefit of hindsight because we'll be earlier in the universe, but we'll be, you know, more advanced in our technology and humanity.
0: So this one wears out. We just build a new one and figure out some way of getting into it.
2: That's the, that's the
1: plan. That's
0: the, that's the, that's Not the that plan. I, I think that's an elegant solution. Um, another one is that we... Uh, I like this plan. I'm glad to be a part of it. Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm.
2: <laughs> See, but I think the universe is is, is indifferent to your happiness. So be uh, happy, it, be mad. I don't think it cares. <laughs> no, it's, a good, it's a good plan.
0: Um, remind me what movie that line came from, Stan? Ghostbusters. Uh, it again from Ghostbusters. Uh, yeah, that's. You, you are a wealth of Ghostbuster lines, my friend. <laughs> um, the. Um, what what I was going to say was that's an elegant plan. Let me let me throw another one at you. What if we go and hack the source code of the universe and write entropy out, or, or just back oh, in time? I think
2: uh, I think that's a that's a brute force approach. There, there's a entropy does so many good things. There, well, there,
0: yeah, but in the long run, it's going to get us with the with the heat death of the universe. There's okay, a, so you can't take it out. You have to
2: you have to code it so it actually has a. Uh, you know, a nice, neat telemetric end. It has a, uh, it's, it's confined. Uh, another
0: another, another way around uh, that, uh, there's, this, there's this story, I wish I could remember the name of it, but it's, it's by Isaac Asimov, and it's about a computer that's given this exact question. How can the entropy of the universe be reversed? And hundreds of thousands, millions of years go by, Mm-hmm. Humanity finally dies off. This computer gets more and more powerful. It finally becomes sort of the universe. I think it's, its name at the end is like the universal AC, and it's this thing that spans galaxies, this huge computer. And we're all gone, and it's left with nothing but that question to to ponder. And
1: uh, how, do we, uh, how do we get past the universe, Yeah,
0: or how, the
1: end of the universe? How do we survive that?
0: Yeah, how can it be reversed? And finally, after... Uh, you know, countless ages have passed. A solution occurs to it, and I remember the last plan of the story is so great. I'm, this is spoiler alert for anybody who's intending to read this story, by the way. But, uh, uh, and the universal AC said, "Let there be light."
1: It was one of the best endings of any science fiction story I've ever read.
0: I still get a chill when I say that. That's
1: oh yeah, this. I mean, and I mean, it blew my mind when I was about twelve and read that story. I mean, that was just. I mean. Uber cool,
0: and, and what's interesting about that is you, you hear a, a real echo of that in the ideas of Tipler, who talks about us um, essentially achieving a state of um, subjective, eternal time before the universe blinks out. So even though objectively the universe is going to, uh, to go into this heat death, he talks about... Uh, finding a uh, finding a trick way around that whereby we will subjectively experience eternity so it won't matter that the universe goes out and and uh, it it seems like that that was kind of the trick work around maybe that uh, that the universal ac was uh, was using there at the end of its story
1: I, I i'm trying to remember the name of that story but i will put it in the show notes
0: yeah anyone in the chat room who might know that
1: yeah and uh, we'll, But I'll definitely figure out what the name of the story is later and put it in the show notes if we don't figure it out before the end of the okay. show.
0: Well, I think that's probably uh, taken us right up to where we need to talk about the show notes and uh, what music have we got going on this, this
1: week. Okay, well, this week we've got Justin Hopkins and the Guilt. <laughs> that's the name of the band, and uh, the song is Here Goes Nothing. Of course, uh, as always, you can get a link to the hi-fi version of the uh, Of the song um, from the show notes, as well as links to all the topics we talk about. You just have to go to the Speculist and uh, and catch the show notes. So,
0: now, did you know we were going to be talking about the heat death of the universe at the end of the show when you picked a song called "Here Goes Nothing"?
1: Man, it's just (laughs) (laughs) exactly. There you go. That's the uh, the brilliance that is our show planning. Outstanding
0: stuff. All right. Well, thank you for uh, uh, setting us up with that music. Uh, Michael, thank you for your contributions. Great talking with both you guys. This was fun. And uh, thanks to our friends in the chat room, to everyone who was uh, listening in. We look forward to being with you all again on the next Fast Forward Radio. Good night.